so continuing with our discussion on the signs of Yomul Qiyamah. So last week we, or last class, we had a, a general overview and I ended by saying that the ulama typically talk about three types of signs, that there are, there are smaller signs and the smaller signs are the things that happen during the time and the life of the companions, the first hundred years of the Islamic calendar. And then there are the medium signs, and the medium signs are the signs that happen after that and continue to happen until they dovetail into the major signs. And then the major signs are usually the signs that we're more familiar uh, with hearing about uh, the Mahdi, Isa you know, things like that. So today we're going to begin by looking at the small signs and the middle signs because we can sort of sum them up and then the rest of the classes will be on the major signs because obviously they're major and there's a lot more, more detail. Now, before we begin, there are two things that I want us to keep in the back of our head and then we'll come back to them inshallah at the very end, which is number one, this is not an exact science. So like everything in Islam, we base our understanding religiously on the Quran and the Sunnah. When it comes to the signs of Yom Al-Qiyamah, just like everything else, there are sound hadith and there are hadith that are made up and there are things that are not sound. So not it's not an exact sign. We don't know when Yom Al-Qiyamah is going to be. There are people that have tried to determine that. There have even been ulama that have tried to determine that. But fundamentally, we don't know when it's going to be. We know it will end somehow. And these signs remind us of the finality of life and the fact that it's near, but we don't know exactly. And a lot of this is going to be based on ijtihad, especially when we come to the bigger signs. We're in, we, we have a text, the hadith says such and such, and we try to interpret that hadith. Our interpretation might be wrong. It doesn't deny the hadith or the veracity of the hadith, but our understanding might be wrong. So keep that in mind. The other thing is what's much more important about than learning these signs. I mean, this is important because it's part of our faith. But what's equally important is how not to get caught up in bad times, not how, how not to get caught up in times of fitna. We talked a little bit about that last time, and inshallah, just keep that in mind. We'll get to that at the end, because what really matters is that we don't fall into difficulty. And as we will see today, the companions largely survived the, the fitnas at their time because they had that prophetic advice in their mind. We, the last Sahabi died around the year 100 of the Hijrah. So we look at the first 100 years to ascertain some of these small signs. So what are some of these small signs? And these small signs meaning that the Prophet Sallallahu said, uh, the hour won't come until this happens. The hour won't come until that happens. Or you will see this happen. Or you will see that happen. And the Prophet spoke about that for all of the signs. So this demarcation of small signs, medium signs, greater signs, this is sort of our uh, mapping how we categorize and organize. So the signs that happen during the life 
of the companions after the passing of the Prophet. First and foremost, it's the risala of the Prophet himself, because he said, I was sent in the hour like this. And many of the major signs, he said, if they happen while I'm alive, I will handle it. If not, then do this, do this, do that. So his message himself, the fact that he was the seal of all prophets, the fact that he was the last of all the prophets, in itself is a sign of Yom Al-Qiyamah, that this universal prophet was sent with this universal message to, to mankind. So his message, his life, and his passing are from the signs, the smaller signs of Yom Al-Qiyamah. Uh, the conquest of Jerusalem in the early, uh, at the time of Sayyidina Omar radiallahu this was one from the, 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 the minor signs. There's a cluster of them that have to do with the differences between the Sahaba themselves. So we know that there were many fitnas uh, during starting with the Khilafah of Sayyidina Uthman and then afterwards there were different uh, groups of companions, some of them unfortunately fought against one another. So a lot of these are also from the small side. So for example, the killing of Sayyidina Uthman, Imam uh, Hudayfa, uh, the, the famous Sahabi, he said the signs of Yom Al-Qiyamah will begin with the killing of Uthman. So the fact that Sayyidina Uthman died and then after that, or he was assassinated rather, and then after that all of these tribulations happened, that was the beginning of the signs. And a lot of these hadith, they go back to Sayyidina Hudayfa. Hudayfa Yemen, he was one of the companions who had memorized the hadith dealing with the signs of Yom Al-Qiyamah, just like he was one of the companions, or he was the only companion that memorized and knew the names of all of the hypocrites. So he was like, one of he, you know, he kept the the secrets of the Prophet The incidents of the Battle of Jamal and Safin, the Prophet he said, the hour will not come until two great groups with the same belief will fight one another. The companions understood this to be the fitna between Imam Ali and Sayyidina Muawiyah. The Khawarij. This is another hadith. The Prophet uh, in a hadith narrated by Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, he said the Prophet ﷺ told us to fight with Imam Ali against the Zalimin. With Imam Ali against the Zalimin, a very specific hadith. We were ordered, and then he also said we were ordered by the Prophet ﷺ to, to fight al-Mariqin. Al-Mariq is somebody who, who, who passes by quickly. And this is the one of the words, one of the adjectives that the Prophet ﷺ used to describe the Khawarij. He said, Yamruku. That the Khawarij pass through this dunya the way that the arrow passes through the bow. Meaning they come and they go like a flash, they come and they go really quickly. And there are many, many, many hadith describing the Khawarij. Uh, most major books of hadith, like Bukhari Muslim, they have sections that talk about the Khawarij, sections that talk about the fitness. And those descriptions are very interesting because one of the, this is just a little bit of a tangent. It's important for us to know this. One of the descriptions of the Khawarij is that they they look like they practice Islam a lot. They pray more than we pray and they fast more than we pray. Uh, fast more than we fast. The Prophet said, you weigh your prayer to their prayer and you weigh your fasting to their fasting and they do more. But they pass through this dunya the way that the Arab passes through the boat because the Quran doesn't go past their throats. They just read the Quran but it doesn't penetrate their hearts. Uh, they say that what they believe in is from the words of the Prophet but it's not from the hadith of the Prophet 
so on and so forth. The Prophet he called them Kilabu Ahlul Nar, that they are the dogs of the hellfire. He said, Glad tidings to the person that fights them. Very, very vivid descriptions of those outliers, those people that take uh, the Quran and the Sunnah and they use it to beat on people like us that follow the Quran and the Sunnah. These khawarij. So it started at the time of Imam Ali. And there are a lot of descriptions, and it's really important for us to know these descriptions because we see, unfortunately, we see a segment of our uh, global community like that. Anyway, so fighting against these people, this was a sign, one of the small signs. Meaning fighting with Imam Ali against the Khawarij. The renunciation of the Khilafah by Imam Hassan, the son of Imam Ali. The Prophet said, my grandson, he said, my son, pointing to Imam Hassan, he will reconciliate, a big reconciliation during his time. And it was his renunciation of the Khilafah after the assassination of Imam Ali and therefore giving the Khilafah to Muawiyah after that, that that saved a lot of bloodshed for the Muslim community. So Imam Hassan was actually the Khalifa for six months. So he is one of the Khulafat al-Rashid. Okay, so those were some of the signs, the minor signs dealing with the conflicts of the Sahaba themselves. And just also as another tangent, we're not here to discuss fitna that happened between the Sahaba to analyze it. Our point is just simply to highlight that it is one of the minor signs of the al We can talk about that another time. Some of the other uh, minor signs or small signs. The appearance of false prophets. So there were people after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, like Musayyid Lim al-Kadhab and um, uh, who killed Musayyid Lim al-Kadhab Wahshay. Wahshay killed Hamza, Sayyidina Hamza, radiallahu anhu, and then he became Muslim, and then later in life he killed uh, Musaylim, the false prophet. And then he said, you know, this spear of mine, it killed the best of creation, meaning Hamza, the uncle of the Prophet, and then it killed the worst of creation, meaning Musaylim, the false prophet. So, for example, Musaylim was one of those false prophets, and there were other people that claimed a prophecy. Uh, after the passing of the Prophet In one of the battles that Imam Ali fought, he said, search out a guy named Dhul Tudayya. It was a man who had a, uh, a, a, a nipple or a breast underneath his armpit. And that, that was his laqab, that was his name. And they found him amongst those that were killed. And he said, you know, the Prophet told me that I will fight somebody named this, named Dhulfudayya, somebody who had an extra, you know, nipple or, or breast under his, all of his armpits. So again, like I said last time, these things increase the faith of the Sahaba. Because, I mean, for the Prophet to say something so specific like that to Imam Ali, and then during the, one of his battles to find that one of his opponents was actually, actually this very odd physical description would only make him this subhanAllah. The Prophet was true and honest in what he told him. The switch from the Khilafah to monarchy. That's also one of the minor signs. So with the renunciation of Imam Hassan, uh, and then Muawiyah became the Khalifa, and then Yazid, and that was the, the, the dynasty of the Umayyads, which was sort of hereditarily passed on until the Abbasids took that over. And this was also one of the signs, uh, the signs because the Prophet said that the Khilafah will change into 
abiding monarchy, meaning a monarchy that will hold on to power with strength. Uh, Ammar, the Prophet said to Ammar, You will be killed by the, the wrongdoers. And he was killed by the Khawarij. So keep in mind, all of the other, a couple others, but I just wanted to highlight this. Imagine this generation of the Sahaba seeing all of these things unfold, and when they see all of these big fitna, all of these big tribulations, all of these weird groups, they think back to what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam taught them. You know, their faith is only going to increase. So the Prophet said, How can you disbelieve that I am amongst you? Because they see it's, it's all true. So one of our goals is when we see this stuff and we hear about it, even if we didn't see it uh, firsthand, but we're reading about it, when we say, Subhanallah, And the Prophet told the Sahaba, when you have this fitna, stay out of the fitna. And those that stayed out of the fitna were those that were saved, and those that you know didn't stay out of it, you know, got caught up in, in a lot of trouble. So again, the prophetic advice is always sort of in our background, in the back of our minds, how do we avoid some of these problems? Okay, some of the middle signs, which sort of started after the first century of Islam and then continued until our time. Well, I'm going to argue that they, that the beginning of the major signs has already happened. So we'll talk about that ne next time. But for, for today's lecture, let's just assume that the middle signs appear after the, the passing of the generation of the Sahaba and continue. There are two kinds. There's about 70, 75 of them. We're obviously not going to, I'm not going to read all of them, but there are about 70, 75 of them. And there are two, you can group them in two groupings. One group is a lot of bad moral stuff. Uh, the increase of alcohol, the increase of usury, you know, people don't pray anymore, things like that. That stuff we know is bad. Morally for us, that stuff is bad. The other stuff are simply signs. And this is one of the things I referenced last week, which is, that the ulama that studied this stuff understood the signs to be simply signs. In the hadith of Gabriel that we began the lecture series with, when Gabriel when the Prophet tells Gabriel that one of the signs of Yom Al-Qiyamah is that you will see people competing to build tall buildings. People like Imam Al-Nawawi and others, they simply understood that as a sign that Yom Al-Qiyamah is near. Not that that was in itself bad. So, that's also important, but because for some reason the approaching of Yom Al-Qiyamah elicits from, from us like a negative reaction, we assume that every, sometimes we assume everything that we read is bad because some of the signs are lumped together with some of the morally bad stuff. And I guess I can understand that. But this is really important uh, because, you know, no one's going to come down and say you're building skyscrapers as hell, for example. I don't know if anyone completely said that. Uh, it's very important when we talk about things like music, uh, because music is mentioned, or musical instruments is mentioned sort of as one of the signs that it be more common and things like that. So the Adama understood that the morally bad stuff is morally bad. Haram is haram. But the other things are simply the passage of time. Okay, so I'll begin with this hadith that's narrated by Ahmed and Tirmidhi. The Prophet said one of the signs will be that the happiest of people is Luka ibn Luka. And Luka in Arabic is um, like a stupid, conniving person. It's like a bad word. Okay? Or I mean, it's, it's bad. It's like you don't want to call somebody that. A stupid, 
conniving person. So when the Prophet, the Prophet said that the best, the happiest of people will be Luka, the son of a Luka, meaning that, that, that the things will be so bad that the person who's thriving is going to be the dishonest, uh, crooked, uh, stupid, feeble-minded person, which I think we can kind of, we can kind of understand how that's the case. But you see, he said Luka, even Luka. So see, it's a generational thing. So when you grow up in that environment, you're going to, you know, it, things will start to deteriorate uh, socially, morally, ethically, etc. So I mean, that's a broad statement, but you know, we don't live in, in a chivalrous time anymore. So the people that tend to thrive are the people that are are uh, stupid and conniving, dim-witted, etc. In in Tirmidhi, the Prophet ﷺ said, "The time will come when the person holding the religion is like holding a hot coal." Meaning that it's going to be difficult to practice your Islam. You're not going to find a lot of support. Whereas in the time of the Salaf, everybody prayed to Hajjud. Everybody fasted throughout the month. Everybody recited the Quran. It was like normal. Now we have to go out of our way to do those things. If we just pray five times a day and pray the Jummah, we're like you know saints. If we just fast all of Ramadan, great. So on and so forth. So. Meaning that it's going, not that we're necessarily going to be persecuted, but that could be part of it. But it, you, we won't find that communal support. It takes a lot of effort for us to come together like this. We really want to be here. It's, there's no support for us to be here. Um, especially on a day like today, it's a long weekend for many people. Today's Valentine's Day. People, you know, don't want to come. I mean, understandably. So it's hard. You go out there and then you have to you know, make wudu, you have to pray, you have to find a place to pray, there's certain things that you can't eat. All of these become obstacles. The Prophet said also, Islam will begin as something strange and it will revert and will end as something strange. So glad tidings to the strangers. So you know, it's strange to do some of the things that we do, so things like that. The hour will narrated by Ahmed Abu Dawood ibn Majid ibn Hibban. The hour will, will come, won't come until the people show off with their mosques. That they use the mosque and they use the mushaf to show off. Now again, not necessarily something that's haram, but you know we have a very simple mosque. But if you go to the Muslim world and you see some of the mosques, they're, they're illustrious, you know, huge architectural feats. Again, not necessarily something that's haram, but a sign. In the early generation, they didn't have mosques like that. The, the most that they had is when they went to Damascus, you know, they just, they found abandoned buildings and churches that no one was using, so they converted those into mosques. So it was illustrious because of, you know, somebody else, not because they built it. But we know that the Masjid of the Prophet Sassan was very simple. It had like a straw roof. Uh, they prayed on the floor, there were no rugs, there were, you know, the Mus'haf was not even written at that time until the Khilafah of Sayyidina Uthman. And now we have uh, museum exhibits of Qur'anic manuscript illuminations. Right? So this is a sign. Again, not necessarily something that's haram or bad, but it's a sign that this will, this will happen. Okay, so let me give you a list of some of the morally uh, bad stuff. Uh, people won't pray anymore. There'll be no trust. Widespread usury. 
and please pay attention that I use the word usury, not bank interest, so there'll be widespread usury. People will think that lying is okay. Life will be cheap. Uh, we'll build tall buildings. People will sell their religion for the dunya. Families will stop keeping ties. Widespread divorce. Corrupted political leaders, although you can argue that we've always had that. Too many khatibs. Designs of the Qur'ans in the mosque, I just talked about that. Men and women will look similar. Men will look like women and women will look like men. The current generation curses the previous generation. Or the generation now curses the earlier, like the Salaf, even the earlier generation. Which is essentially is what's happening, you know, what's happening now. When people say, when people say, uh, when I when Sitoma asks me a question and I give an answer to like a, uh, contemporary political issue, people will be like, yeah, you know, but that's like, you know, when you start off like that, that's what you're doing. You're, 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 it's not, not that I'm saying I'm always right, but when I'm, when I'm just transmitting an answer to a question that I know, and someone says, yeah, but you know, that's like the old world. Like, we, life is not like that anymore. That's a form of that. That's a form of not wanting to listen to what the prophetic guidance is and following. The Prophet said, None of you truly believe until your own desire is in accordance with what I brought. So our job is to see what he said, Sassan, and follow it. Not make him like, you know, I'm debating with the Prophet. So that's very dangerous. So that's a that's a form of that. So you get a sense that these things start and then they kind of continue. Okay, all of those are considered by the ulama, the middle signs of Yom Knowledge will be lost. Ignorance becomes common. There'll be much fornication. Men will be, or not just much fornication, but people will start to see like it's no big deal. Men will be reduced in population and women will be increased in population. The hadith says such that there will be 50 women to each man. So these are some of the, uh, the middle signs. Most of them, I should say, that we went over sound bad. They're, they're like morally bad things. Some of them are not. I, that I necessarily didn't come up music and tall buildings and things like that. Anyway, the point is, is that all of these things the Prophet said will happen. The hour will not come until this happens. The hour will not come until that happens. And when we see these things, we lament, you know, yeah, subhanAllah, it's bad that there's uh, ignorance is common, it's bad that there are all of these moral things. But we also say, Sadaqah, Rasulullah. The Prophet was honest. And trustworthy, and this is how things have unfolded. And then we ask Allah's protection from these things. Now, the last thing I want to say before uh, we have questions and answers is that there's a transition that I'm going to argue happened, and we'll talk about it more next time, but that happened with the collapse of the Ottoman Caliphate in 1924. Because the Prophet told us that this is one of the signs of Yom Al-Qiyamah, that we will lose the Khilafah. And it was the hadith that's narrated by Hudayfa, it's narrated in Bukhari, there's a version of it in uh, Ahmed as well, in which the uh, Hudayfa is asking the Prophet Your things are good now, are things going to get bad? And he says, yes, it's going to look like this. And he's like, after things get bad, will they get good again? It's a very long hadith. And at the very end, the Prophet he said, give them an imam, you know, stay with the leader. The political leader, not like the Imam of 
prayers. They were the political leader and the Khalifa. And then Hudayfa says, well, what if there is no Khalifa or political leader? The Prophet said, Al-Harab, Al-Harab. You know, stay away from all these like political groups. Because at that time, there, the Khalifa ends, there will be no Khalifa by your means again. So the laws of the Ottoman Caliphate, and I think I mentioned a little bit in the previous lecture, a little bit about this. So this was a very traumatic effect, uh, incident. In many respects, it is the greatest trauma of the modern Muslim community. The, the fact that we lost this political hegemony, political power, this office called the Khilafah. Yeah, it was ceremonial, of course, no one denies that. But, you know, there was still a Khalifa. When that ended, there were actually several attempts to bring back the Khalifa. There was an attempt in Egypt, there was an attempt in India, but, you know, of course, the Muslim leaders couldn't agree because every Muslim leader wanted to be the new Khalifa, so obviously that wasn't going to get very far. And, again, Sadaqah Rasulullah the Prophet said, when you lose the Khalifa, he didn't say, organize and bring it back. He said, you know, it is al Jamal, stay with the community. Be by yourself. There's no community, even if you have to stay at home. Be with your friends and your family at home. Meaning, stay away from the political machinations that people will try to use in the name of Islam. So this is, is a transition. It's a medium sign. It's one of the middle signs. But we'll see next time that it will transition into what will be the beginnings of some of the major signs. Any questions? I don't know. Well, well, it doesn't. It doesn't mean all men and women will look the same. But there will be groups of men that will be indistinguishable from women, and vice versa. So again, we can. We can take it to mean, I mean, I've met many people that I, it took me a while to realize that they were men or women. You mean dress <laughs> No, not just dress, also, I think also physical. Yeah. Also physical, I'll just leave it there. You can use your imagination. <laughs> I'm sure we've all encountered people. Whether it's natural or whether it's on purpose or whether it's with hormones, I mean, it, it's a sign, meaning that when we see that, it will, you know, it will be normal. In in in, in the medieval world, it was common that uh, actors, for example, largely be men. So if there's a woman role, like in Shakespearean play, you know, they'll get young boys, they'll dress up as girls and stuff. But, yeah, but it's acting. And now it's now it's different. Now it's 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 odd. And now people want to change genders even and, and use and use uh, chemicals and pharmacology to, to make that gender, you know, and surgeries to make that gender transition. So, you know, that's a, that's a sign. We would probably say that that's morally bad as well. This kind of design? What? Have you seen these gender designs? I think we're beyond all. I think we're now. I think we're now. I think we're in the major signs. We're in the beginning of the major signs. That's why I said, you know, nine tenths of these things they have they have transpired already. What do you mean by 
Well, you, you all know what I think about bank interest. So I, I, mean, I mean that which is not, not bank interest. So usually is uh, to buy, uh, uh, technically usually is based on gold and silver. Is to, is to give more than you have taken in the financial transaction, but only in gold and silver. There is also usurious, uh, usurious transactions, such as selling a debt for another debt, and therefore incurring more debt. That's a, a ribawi transaction. It's not riba itself, but it's a ribawi transaction. No, 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 that's like, um, I owe you money, I owe you a hundred bucks. I owe him a thousand dollars. So I'm, and I can't pay it back. So I'm going to go borrow the thousand from uncle. Uh, and then I'm going to pay him back the thousand, but now I'm going to owe him two thousand. And then the debt just keeps getting bigger and bigger. The Prophet said, The Prophet forbade selling one debt for another debt. So it's a riba weed transaction. So, so on and so forth. Uh, not bank interest. No. Oh, what happens to the credit card that nowadays, especially if people have one credit and then the interest rate, they will sold to come. So they transfer that balance to another maybe credit card. So it keeps going. That's buy on credit with credit. That would be haram. So you can only really buy on your credit card what you can pay in full. Then that's not haram because then the credit card, it just becomes like a form of wakat. You are, uh, the credit card is purchasing things on your behalf and then therefore you pay them back. Like if I gave you money and I said, can you go to the market and buy me this, that, and the other thing? That's what a credit card essentially is. But to, to buy more than you can to pay and then to owe the money back in debt, it's haram not because of its, its riba, it's haram because it's bayar kadit kadit. Please, let's not talk about bank interest. <clears throat> Anything else? Tari, can you please repeat what you just said uh, at the end? That sounds like Milo. You're right. But I don't see you. That's so weird. Sorry. Oh, there you are. Okay. Sorry, I just heard a voice. So what were you saying? Well, good to see you, by the way. Okay, so so I have a credit card, and I'm going to use the credit card to buy things, and then when the statement comes, I have X number of days to pay my statement, or else after which I will have to I will incur a late fee and interest, or I, or they encourage you to pay the minimal amount and then tack on the interest. So if I buy, let's say I spend $1,000 on my credit card every month, and then when the statement comes, I pay it in full, then there's nothing wrong with that. Because that type of transaction is permissible in the Sharia. It's called a wakana. It's like authorizing somebody else to buy on your behalf. Because when you go and you use your credit card, basically the credit card is purchasing that item or spending that money on your behalf and then charging you for it. But if I buy more than I can cover, with a credit card and end up paying the minimal amount, then I incur debt. And then the debt piles on because there's interest to the debt. That would be haram. 
because that type of transaction the Prophet doesn't forbade us from. It has nothing to do with gold, silver, paper, money, fiat currency. That's a different transaction. That's haram because of the debt, because because it is impermissible for us to find ourselves in a situation where we can't pay back that debt. Because if you if you've done that, then essentially you couldn't you can't afford those things in the first place. I'm sure there are other mitigating circumstances. I'm just trying to simplify the transaction. That's different. The student loan is different because, uh, first of all, almost no one pays back their student loan. Uh, you know, hoping, well, I think if Bernie comes, you know, he's going to eliminate it all for everyone, so it's going to be saved. And it's a necessity. I mean, you have to get an education. That that's that's different. That's different. And then they don't. The the, the debt collector doesn't come after you with a student loan the way they come after you like a credit card company. So there is debt, there's a lot of debt forgiveness in the student loan process. So it's, it's a different, that's like a unique American situation. So student loan doesn't count. So everyone's got to get an education. Anybody else? Yes. I don't know. Question about uh, science. I know you said it's the passing of time, but how come we see them as so negative? Let's say, for example, when we follow rooms, a lot of people have seen what's happening in the room, we say, oh, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Uh, music. I think because things are not as good now as they were, you know, the time of the Prophet So from that point of view, we say it's bad. And I think that that's, there's a, a tendency, a human tendency to see the passage of time as something that's negative. But at the same time, the Prophet told us that the good will be in the Ummah until Yom Qiyamah. I said that last week, meaning that there will always be good in, in the Islamic community. Always, until the final hour comes, no matter how bad things come. So our goal is to be amongst those people and not to be phased. And that's why having these discussions, as bizarre as they seem sometimes, it's important. So that we have something in our mind that we can be reminded when things become difficult, when there's great tribulation, when there's great fitna, we can be reminded, yeah, we have this conversation, and we know that that can happen, and we know that we should just stay away from the fitna. It's really as simple as that. If you just stay away from the fitna, you're going to be fine. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said somebody could be physically away from their fitna, from the fitna, but their heart is in the fitna. So it's also not, it's not like a physical thing we're talking about, but just not to be phased by it. Um, you know, people like, I remember the, the, the day after Trump was elected. I think it was, we had class, I think it was on Friday. And I remember a lot of people were really like stressed out. And, and I'm just like, it's, it doesn't really mean anything at all. Just we have to live, we still have to live our life. But whatever happens, happens. Sometimes people get really worked up over these things. And when you get really worked up, if you really get worked up because you're, zo you're, you're zoomed in right now, but if you can abstract and remember that all of this, when we die, 
and we're asked about our actions, all of this life will be like two minutes. Then we're going to be able to be even killed about dealing with a lot of bad things and not get worked up. Because we know there are signs. We know that bad stuff happens all the time. So I think that it's important that we, we build that type of resilience and you know that attitude of like we can we can still have a good life, we can still have we can still flourish as a community, we can still flourish as people. It doesn't matter if these fitna things don't have to affect us. So I think it's that's why it's just the perspective that we have with the passage of time and things like that. I have a question. Is there a like, can you, the really you have to give that avoid twice as much as you don't stop. Can you make it even and the same? Yeah, you can do a wasiyah. You can give up to a third of all of your wealth in a wasiyah. So you could give a third of your wealth to your neighbor, and that's your wasiyah. But not your. No, no, you can't say any. You, yeah, when you're alive. Again, we said we call we said before we started milk ten. Your money is yours. Your your wealth, your assets are yours. Now to do with them as you want. You want to give them all to to Lana, give them all to Lana. You want to give them all to me, Ahlan will send them. You you want to give uh, the girls each half and your son cut, Ahlan will send them. You can do whatever you want now because it's yours. Now, yeah, you can you can give them things. If you do the trust, as long as all of them are in agreement, it's gonna it'll be fine. So if all of the waratha agree, then it's okay. So that's another five percent. That's my asked the question. <laughs> That was when the men actually took on that responsibility. Whereas these days, you know, everybody works equally and everybody's responsible for themselves. So, how do you adjust that? Well, there are different. There are different mechanisms. So, while a person is alive, they are free to do with their wealth what they want. That, that, that's an important point. So let's say I have some property uh, and some money in the bank account. Now, while I'm alive, I can title that property in my children's name. Now, I'm alive. There's a, the, the, the will doesn't mean, or the inheritance structure in the Sharia doesn't mean I can't touch the money now, and when it dies, it has to go. Rather, the way we should look at it is when we die, if we haven't directed our assets a certain way, this is how they are going to be distributed. So while we are alive, we construct, we can create a trust, which I recommend most people do because it's a, it's a strong vehicle. And, um, in, this, in, in Maryland, there are many different types of trusts for married people. and It's better because we don't want any of our wealth to, to slip back into the state or to the or federal taxes. That's like haram. You work your whole life and you, end up, you, you die and you still take it. So the trust is a good idea. So you are free to do with your wealth what you want while you're alive. And then the wasiya can be done for up to one third. So let's say I have a million dollars. That's all I'm gonna die with. I can put cash. I can make a wasiya that one third of that will go to, for example, my daughter, in addition to whatever their portions are. So in the Sunni fiqh, you can do up to one third. 
I will see you. So there are other, and, there, and I said, if the, of all the waratha agree, if all of the, the, the kids that are going to inherit agree to a certain arrangement, then that's fine as long as it's done with all of the permission. So you shouldn't think of it as like this draconian, it's got to be this way. Rather, Allah is saying, if you don't do anything while you're alive, this is how it's going to be distributed. They say jealousy anyway. Except, فَوْقَ so a, th a third is okay. So you could write your entire wealth um, while you're alive to you could write a, like a present for like a message. Yeah, you're free. You're free because... Yeah. yeah, that's why we say that one of the maqasid of the sharia, one of the meta principles of the Sharia is the preservation and protection of wealth. So the Sharia sees wealth as something that's very strong. If you own something, you are free completely to do with it as you want. You can sell it, you can give it to the mosque, you can give it to a charity, you can retitle it in your children's name, you know, you can give it to your neighbor, whatever. The, the fact that you own something, and milkiya means that you can deal with it as you want. That's just the line I'm asking. Yeah, I have a phone for. Yeah, we have a form for you, by the way. <laughs> no, I think it's very important because we do have a lot of Muslims, you know, maybe not very involved in the massages, but when they pass, they have this wealth and it goes back to the state because they have a you know, yeah. Yeah, it would be very nice to have like an estate lawyer. If we had like a, if we knew an estate lawyer, Muslim or not Muslim, and we could do a, a couple of sessions with them. I did that. I went to an estate lawyer, me and my wife, and, and we several years ago before we went to the Hajj, and um, we worked on that stuff. And that's when it was really it was very clear to me that it's it's an, it's an absolute necessity. I mean, we have to have, we have, like you said, you can easily end up paying a lot of money in state taxes. Yeah, or I can work with them or somebody like me can work with them. But I mean, we need to know what the law in the state is and the federal law is, and it's always changing. And then we need to know what the Sharia allows so we can create, you know, some kind of, like, for example, we think of a will. When we say will Islamically, that's not really what they mean in American law. Because the will is open after you die and after you've been buried, it's too late. So if you say in your will, oh, I wanna like be buried in Pakistan and oh, I wanna be buried in this semi it's too late by the time they open the will, you're done, you're, you're, you're under the ground. So there's another mechanism for that. So a lot of Muslims, they wanna write in their will those things. You know, I want this is like my last will and testimony. I want to be shrouded Islamically and washed and buried in a Muslim cemetery, and I want to have the janaza in a mosque. But by the time the lawyer opens up the actual will, the will means something legally here different than that. Now, trust is like an instrument, is to how you organize your assets. So I didn't realize that until I sat with an estate lawyer, and then I realized, oh, that stuff doesn't actually go in the will. I'm just gonna, I can leave that stuff in a document at home with my wife and children. So when I die, they know, you know, what needs to be done. The will really talks about the distribution of wealth here, primarily. So one thing led to another, and then I realized that 
there's a lot of strength in the marital relationship, in not just in the United States, but particularly in the state. So in this state, they have something called uh, the joint tenants by the entirety trust. You can create a trust that is joint tenants by the entirety. <laughs> so both spouses own, it's not part of the lesson, but I'm just passing Both spouses that own are trustees of that trust, and it is owned the way that a marital home is owned, joint tenants by the entirety. Which at the time that I went to this estate lawyer was a brand new trust in the state of Maryland. So there are a lot of, and there are different, you know, they have different names for different trusts. And then there are these different mechanisms that allow the wealth to pass to the children. Uh, when they're a certain age, they get it piecemeal so they don't, you know, overspend and things like that. So I realized that there's a, we have a long, a lot to learn about that stuff. I mean, at least I, do. I, I still have a lot to learn. So I, it would be a good, I, if anyone knows an estate lawyer, you should. Last year, I think about a year ago, we had a friend from DC, the Muslim lawyer, state lawyer, and he had a seminar here, Janaza and the state thing. So, inshallah, if you're interested, we organize something. Yeah, it's very important. It's very important. Yeah. Um, going back to the science, the real science question, um, can you explain about the <clears throat> well, there was no, there was no uh, minaret in the mosques in the early mosques. There was no minaret. They would just stand outside or on the roof of the building, and they were called the event. So once they started building the minarets, you know that's where all of the design work. And the minarets are have a function. Because the minarets in the in the in the medieval mosques, the Mu'addin would actually climb the actual minaret to call the adhan. And there are different you know designs of the east and the west. And then they started adding calligraphy on the inside of the mosques and and tile work and then rugs and then the mahrab. We don't have a mahrab, but the the, the the prayer niche in the front of the mosque, so that we save a line. So if there's a prayer niche, the imam prays in that. So then we have the whole line behind it. Because in this mosque, we don't have one. I take up by myself this whole first line. So we lose one whole, like 30 people are, are reduced from praying. So, so on and so forth. So, um, and then the lights and then the candles that they have to put so that the whole thing can be lit all night long. And then the running waters, you know, so one thing led to another. And then some of these, you know, Mamluk age mosques, like in Egypt, for example, are, are colossal. Works of art, really, very, very, uh, very beautiful. So it's improving the sign. A sign that the hour is near. It doesn't mean that that's haram. I mean, making the mosque uh, hospitable for people is good. But the Prophet is saying when, when that happens, that's one of the signs that the hour is getting near. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's haram. Unless, you know, the state took money from, like, poor people and, like, built a fancy mosque. Yeah. In that case, it could be, it could be hard. But the, the fact of building a comfortable mosque in and of itself was nothing wrong with that. You know, but the mosques now are very, very uh, super luxe compared to, you know, the time of the setup. It's very tough living. We're all living like, really comfortably. Some mosques even have warm water in the winter. Fresh towels. But some people use them as a hotel. 
There's no NS, so if we're done, we can pray we can pray Hashem. There's nothing else. There's no class next Friday. I will I will be absent next Friday. So just keep a reminder. Yeah. We're gonna keep talking about it until it actually happens. What's left are the major signs. The juicy stuff. The Mahdi and the Masih al-Dajjal and then Isa alayhi salam and Ya'juj and Ma'juj and the Dabba and the destruction of the Kaaba and the sun rising in the west and setting in the east. We still got a lot of stuff to talk about. The Yeah. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. I have some, I have some, I have some shocking things next, next class for sure. Yeah, so we have the, the juicy stuff. It's maybe a couple more lectures. And then we'll, we'll, we'll find something else before Ramadan. Okay? Shepherd?